Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me before thee. We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Let my lips thy praise confess, yea, of thy word my tongue would sing, yea, Well, greetings this morning in the name of our Sovereign God. Greetings. Our God is a God of the unexpected. He's full of surprises. We never know exactly what's coming next, and this is good. We're going to talk about that a lot today, and I'll be preaching about it. I call us to worship this morning with the 20th Psalm that will put our hearts right, I think, as we prepare to think about God from this perspective. Hear God's word from the 20th Psalm to the chief musician, a Psalm of David. The Lord hear thee in the day of trouble. The name of the God of Jacob defend thee. Send thee help from the sanctuary and strengthen thee out of Zion. Remember all thy offerings and accept thy burnt sacrifice, Selah. Grant thee according to thine own heart and fulfill all thy counsel. We will rejoice in thy salvation and in the name of our God. We will set up our banners. The Lord fulfill all thy petitions. Now know I that the Lord saveth his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we, Foundation Church, we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They are brought down and fallen, but we are risen and stand upright. Save, Lord, let the King hear us when we call. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, it is a good and joyful thing to be here today in your meeting house with your people. Lord, your word is the foundation of all that we do and think and say. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. We thank you for calling us out of darkness into the kingdom of your dear Son. We thank you for calling us your children, for so we are. And so as the members of Foundation Church, as this local congregation, as part of your glorious worldwide church that has been throughout all the ages and ever will be, we thank you for calling us together, for spreading a table before us. And I pray that our praise of you, our singing to you, our worship of you would be delightful to your ears, that it would be as incense rising up, and that it would be pleasing to you our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Remain standing for just a minute. I'm going to read my short text for today's sermon. It comes from Ephesians chapter 3. Now unto him that is able to do 
immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to the power that worketh in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it never changes. Lord, as the grass withers and the flower falls and all about us is changing, your word is forever. And I thank you that we can trust it knowing that it has come from you, that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And oh, Father, I pray that you would speak through me now by the power of your Holy Spirit, that I would shed light on your word and rightly divide it, that we might see you more clearly, that we might behold your goodness and your greatness, and that we might be more inclined to worship you and to love you with all our hearts and minds and soul and strength. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you've heard me say many times that uh, I'm a math guy, and um, I like things that are linear. You know, I like things that fit in grids and that you can graph and that fit neatly in the box. They're, um, they're quantifiable and predictable. Uh, I like things that can be extrapolated. There's a word you might not know, but to extrapolate means, I think I have a definition here, to predict future outcomes based on known facts. You take what you know, and to extrapolate means I know what's going to happen next then. So I, I'm the kind of guy that likes to see if you have a dot here, this happens, then this happens, then this happens, guess what's going to happen next? This, right? You can extrapolate and look out and go, I, I see where this is going. I see a pattern. I see the trajectory of this. And so uh, in math and in science, some of you children, a lot of you are studying these things. God does work this way, doesn't he? He makes the universe predictable or else it would be impossible to learn anything. If, you know, if you, uh, I, I banged my shin on a piece of steel yesterday, and guess what? It hurt, and I started to bleed. So if it was kind of a, a mystery what would happen every time you bang your knee into a piece of steel, maybe every third time it would be the thrill of a lifetime, and we'd all go around banging our knee into things not knowing because it's unpredictable. But we know when your body makes contact with something, it's going to hurt. Right? You know that when you drop something, it's going to go toward the earth because the law of gravity is predictable. So when I was a young person and I began to learn these things, I loved it because it's like it makes sense. There are actually laws. Newton, our good Christian brother, Sir Isaac Newton, did not invent the law of gravity any more than Columbus invented America. But he discovered something that God had done and made, that there were laws of gravitation. So I like that. I like things that are predictable. I like to be able to see a pattern and say, based on what I've seen so far, based on the past, I know what the future is going to be. But we soon learn as we get older that God doesn't operate that way in our lives, does he? He does operate that way in math and in science and in some things. But in the events of our life and the path that he takes us, God is not predictable. Everybody agree with that? We have no idea where he's taking us. In fact, one thing we know for sure is he's probably not taking us where we think he's taking us. Anybody seen that so far in your life? Life isn't turning out like you planned, for better or worse. Throughout human history, God has intervened in human history in these dramatic, uh, unexpected ways. 
in life-changing events. I call these events reversals. And so I want to talk to us today about, <clears throat> about reversals from three perspectives. One is I want us to look at some examples in Scripture. And there are, there are literally hundreds of examples. I started thinking of them. And then my children were chiming in, and I said, whoa, we've got to slow down. I'm gonna, I could stand up there for two hours just talking about the examples in the Bible. So the second thing I want to do is to ask, what would God have us to learn from these? It's not just enough to go to the Bible and see what's there, but then we want to say, what is God teaching us? And the third thing I want to do briefly is just to talk about what do we do with that? How do we apply it? I think our, when I'm preaching, I always try to bring things back to the gospel to say because of what Christ has done, because of what our Heavenly Father is doing in our lives, what should we then do? How should we then live? Right? What do we do with that? So there's our brief outline for today. And let's start with the first part, which is examples in the Bible from obviously thousands of years ago. Well, the first one is creation. Remember when God made the world... He made it in six days, and at the end, what did he say about it? It was, all, it was all good. It was all very good. The only thing that wasn't good was Adam. They're all by himself. God said, that's not good that a man should be alone. But everything else, so he made Eve, right? So when all was done, God said it was all very good. But really, the first major reversal that I see is this time, 1,000 or 1,500 years later, when God said, this is not good. I, I regret the fact, I repent of the fact that I even made man because every thought of man's heart was continually wicked. And so God did something unprecedented. It's never been, happened before that, never happened after that. What did he do? He destroyed the entire world with the flood except for eight people. And we all know the story of Noah and the ark, right? But think of, think of how life-changing this was. Well... It wasn't life-changing, it was life-ending for everybody there on earth. But no doubt millions and millions of people, except Job and his wife, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. There were eight people aboard the ark, and when the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat, everything was completely different. The world was different, the atmosphere was different. You know, I'm not going to go into all the science of it, but you know the story. That's a reversal, right? That's God, the world's going in one direction, and God told Noah... I'm going to have to do this. You, I found you righteous, and I'm going to preserve you and your family. The rest of the world is wiped out. Can you imagine waking up, and you are the only family on the face of the earth? I mean, if you think you've been through some pretty life-changing moments, that's a life-changing reversal there. And the world basically started over in many ways. Second example I thought of was Job. And uh, Jeff read to us from Job today. The beginning of the book is probably familiar to most of you or all of you. Job was a blessed man. He was righteous in the eyes of God. Not only that, but he was pretty well set up. Job was a wealthy man. Those numbers that Jeff read, he had, I forget, 14,000 of this and 6,000 of that. If you go back and read the first chapter, those numbers are double. God, when he restored Job, he doubled the blessing he gave him. But even in the beginning of the book, Job was a very wealthy man. Uh, he was wealthy in material goods. He was wealthy in animals. He was wealthy in money and all the things you could be wealthy in. And he was wealthy in family. He was married and he had many sons and daughters. He was, you know, from all we can read, he was living, living the good life. And what did God do? 
Job was probably thinking, I mean, it said that he would pray for his children. He didn't take it for granted. He was not a proud man. But I have to think that he was believing, this is the life I'm going to live till the day I die. And that's not what happened, is it? God brought this incredible reversal in his life where he allowed Satan to come and take away Job's material goods. Then he took away his children. He, he lost all ten of his children. And then he lost his health to the point where he's in sackcloth and ashes, scraping himself, of, of, trying to scrape these sores off of his body. And his friends just came and they, they couldn't even look at him. They said, I can't believe this has happened to you. Is this even our friend Job? This wealthy, prosperous, happy, blessed man. The change that happened in Job's life was inexplicable. Who brought it? God did. Jeff, uh, I'm always a little bit, uh, it makes me cringe when I hear the text. It's God's word, but it says all the evil that God had brought upon him. It wasn't Satan. Satan came in the story, but God could have said, nope, that's not happening. God ordained that, that, that those things would happen to Job. God brought that reversal to him. And then at the very end of his life, you heard the story, God reversed him back the other way. So reversals aren't always necessarily for the bad. Sometimes they're for the good. And God restored him. He lived many more, you know, a couple more generations. He saw his son's sons and, and lived a blessed life from then on. Can you imagine, well, I was going to say, what if Job had written that down? Hey, we have it right there. But what a book that would make. Job telling his story, all the intimate details of what he was thinking going through that. And we have a lot of that in God's word. Here's another one. How about Abraham? Do any of the young people in the church remember the name of the place where Abraham lived before God sent him off? He lived in the land of what? Yell it out if you know it. Ur, Ur the land of Ur. Now Abraham, again, a wealthy guy. Uh, maybe some people call him Prince Abraham. And the Lord says, you're established here. I want you to get up and I want you to take all your stuff and go somewhere. And Abraham says, where am I going? The Lord says, I'm not going to tell you. Now, uh, the Elliots just moved. Pretty big move, right? Colorado to beautiful central Ohio. Chapmans are getting ready to move. That's a major ordeal, right, Merge Marie? Right? Are you packing? Done. Done packing. I mean, that's... Benita, I was telling Paul yesterday when we moved, I think you were at our house four nights in a row, like many hours, just doing nothing but packing boxes eight years ago. You remember that? Just packing, moving is an unbelievable amount of work. Imagine taking everything you own and going to who knows where. That's what God told Abraham to do. Pretty major reversal. Get up and go and you'll figure it out when you get there. I'll be with you. Wow. Now, this one, might be the, this one might take the cake. How about Joseph? The story of Joseph in the Bible. He's the son of who? Jacob, right? Jacob has 12 sons. He's in this family. He's heard the stories about Abraham and Abraham's promised son, Isaac, this miraculous birth given to, Ab to uh, Abraham and Sarah in her old age. He knows about his grandfather. He knows about his father, I his grandfather Isaac. He knows about his father, Jacob. And then Joseph is hated by his brothers and sold into slavery, right? He's sold. They take him off. Some of them want to kill him. One of his brothers says, no, nah, let's not do that. Let's just throw him in the pit. And then they sell him to these guys coming by. He ends up in Egypt. 
And then he's falsely accused. So he goes from being the grandson, right, the great-grandson of Abraham to where is he now? He's in a prison. He's in a dungeon, chained up, falsely accused. What do you think is going through his mind? How in the world did I end up here? What did I do to deserve this? You talk about going from the very high to the very low. And then there's this incident, remember, with the, uh, the cupbearer and the baker, and eventually, you know, years later, Joseph gets called up. And they say, hey, can you help us interpret this dream? He interprets a dream. And then later in the story, where does he end up? He's the prime minister of Egypt, basically. He's running, he's second man to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, everybody in Egypt's answering to this guy. <laughs> I mean, how's that for a reversal? You go from being in prison for years, not like overnight, you know, a slap on the hand. He's in prison for years, and then the Lord does this complete turnaround. Not only does he get out of prison, but he's ruling over Egypt. And he's saving probably millions of people's lives from the famine by this plan of storing up the grain, and you know that story. Not only does he save the people of Egypt, he saves his own family, his brothers and his father, everyone who is in that, I think there's 70-some people, they go and get them, and they bring them into the land of Egypt, and they live there, and Pharaoh takes good care of them, and they all lived happily ever after. What a story. What a story of an unbelievable reversal. How about Moses, raised in Pharaoh's palace? And then what happens? He kills a man, he's a fugitive, and he's out in the desert somewhere in Midian. And I'm not going to go through all the details, but you know about his reversal. He goes from the palace of Pharaoh to being out there slaving with the Israelites. And then God calls him and says, Hey, you, the guy that killed a man that ran for your life, you're the guy I'm going to use to go and oppose Pharaoh. And Moses does the human thing. He says, who, me? I can't talk. I, what am I going to know how to say? And God says, I'll send your brother Aaron. It's all going to work out. And then later, Moses is standing before the Pharaoh of Egypt, telling him, God says, let my people go. He must have been, you know, throw down your rod. He throws it down and turns into a snake. Moses had to be thinking, how did I get here? What a story. If we had just one of these, we would say, what kind of a God is it that does things like this in people's lives? But there's many of them. How about Ruth, the starving widow? She had lost her husband. I talked about it last week. She is redeemed by this wealthy man, this good and godly man, Boaz. And she becomes the great-grandmother of King David, and she's in the lineage of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. From starving widow to great-grandmother of King David. That's a pretty neat story to tell your kids about what God did in your life. I was going this way. Everything looked, you know, think of the life of a widow, a starving widow in those days. Look pretty bleak. And then look where she ended up. That's a phenomenal reversal of fortune. How about another lady in the Bible, Esther, an orphan. Her mother and father are dead. And what happens to her? Of all the women in the entire land, she's chosen to be the queen. And she ends up having access to the king. He loves her, and she's able to go to him and basically save all of God's people. To go to say, oh, king, do you understand what's happening here? And he said, well, I can't believe this is happening. And the Bible says she was placed in that position for such a time as this. Wow. Any of you young ladies 
Ever dream about that? Like, you go from where you are and you're going to be the rich queen living in a palace somewhere with the king pouring his love upon you. What an amazing story. All right, if that isn't enough, example from the Bible, here's four more. How about the life of Jesus? And I don't mean to be sacrilegious, but this, is, this isn't sacrilegious. This is one of the ultimate reversals. Christ leaving heaven. He is God. He becomes a baby born of low estate, laid in a manger. Pretty big change of scenery, wouldn't you agree? He did it willingly. He goes to the cross, and the Son of God is nailed to a cross with the sins of you and me and every sinner among his people upon him. Wow. And if that wasn't a big enough reversal, what happened three days later? He's risen from the dead. He's walking around. He's talking to people. The people that loved him and followed him are falling on their faces. They, they're saying, I can't, can I touch you? It can't be real. And he's saying, it's real. I was dead and I'm alive. I told you guys and you didn't understand. That's a reversal right there. How about Saul? Michael read it for us in Acts chapter 9. You remember a couple years ago we read about Paul, uh, Saul then, hailing men and women, dragging them into prison, persecuting Christians, killing them. And then the Lord encounters him on the way to Damascus, confronts him, and three days later, what's Paul doing? He's preaching. He goes from a persecutor of Christ, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then three days later, he's preaching the gospel. And the Christians are saying, we've heard about this guy. This is not good. And they say, no, no, it's okay. The Lord has told me it's okay. He's one of us now. He's a brother. I love how you read that. Brother, brother Saul. Brother Saul, I know you've, you've heard in a dream. I'm Ananias. It's okay. This guy's okay. He's one of us. There had to be people who watched what Saul had done thinking, how did this guy go from that to this. And the way he did it was not by his own power. It's because God did this, completely turned him from this path to going this way. Isn't it phenomenal to know? Isn't it encouraging to know that God does these things? How about Peter? The little girl saying, I think you're one of his followers. Aren't you one of his followers? And Peter the coward. No, I don't even know who that guy is. Lord, I'll be with you to the end. You can count on me. These other guys may leave you, but not me, Lord. And then there at the fire, the little girl. He's afraid of the little girl. Uh, no, never heard of the guy. Am I a Galilean? I don't know who you're, what you're talking about. And then Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes, and what's Peter doing? We're going to kill you. We're going to throw you in prison. And Peter says, I don't care. You can do what you want to me. I can't help but go talk about what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. How did that happen? That's a reversal. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God taking this doubting, kind of boisterous, boasting, loudmouth guy who loved the Lord Jesus but couldn't seem to get a grip on his own life and his own thoughts and his own words, and then he's out boldly risking life to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus. An incredible reversal. There's one more, and that hasn't happened yet. The Bible tells us of a future reversal that's going to come. We say every Sunday, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. There's going to come a time, we memorized it in Philippians, 
Our citizenship, our conversation, the King James says, is in heaven, from whence we look for the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body. When we all die and go to the grave, assuming Christ has not come back yet, there's going to be a day when that vile body is made glorious, like Christ's body. Jesus said at the end of the Bible, Behold, I make all things new. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. That will be a reversal. All this stuff, this muck out here, I don't know what it's going to look like in the new heavens and the new earth, but it's going to be way better than this. In my opinion, there will be no February in the new heavens and new earth. I don't know how it's going to work. We're going to skip from Christmas to, you know, St. Patrick's Day. We'll just go right from one festival to another. So it's worth pondering. All, and there's many more I could talk about in the Bible, but you get the point. God, God does these incredible, unexpected, life-changing things. He did them many, many times in the Bible, and I think he's trying to teach us something. So what is he trying to teach us? I think number one is, we plan, but God directs our steps. Amen? I love to plan. I, I used to go to time management seminars and goal-setting things. and I read books about planning, and I had my whole life planned out. And almost nothing that I had planned out came to be. Not because I wasn't a good planner, but because God had other plans. And guess who wins when we have plans different from the Lord's? Proverbs 16.9, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Here's the second thing to learn. Rulers and those in power can issue laws and edicts but God rules over all. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. I can't help but make a political comment. Um, wherever you are on Donald Trump, I don't even know where I am on President Donald Trump, but aren't we all a bit surprised to some degree of what's happened in the last year? I mean, he was at the bottom of my list. I, I'm sure I told some of you, and I... But I would not have predicted, and I'm not saying everything he's done is wonderful, but who would have predicted that this man with the past history that he had and the things he had said and the things he had done consistently, who would have predicted that he would end up being our president and doing some of the things that he's done? You know, they say he's a Christian. I don't know. I, I don't know the man's heart. I've never met him. I'm not going to comment on it. But I'll say this. Something has happened that is making him do different things than we would have predicted. Is that a fair statement to say? God is doing something there, and it's, it's fun to watch. It's entertaining. <laughs> All right, last thing to learn. Though tempted to question God, we must not put him on trial when these, rever when these reversals come. I'm going to read you this passage from Romans 9, and it's in the context as... As Calvinists, we like to quote this passage in terms of God's electing some to salvation. But think of it in terms of any major change that happens in our life. Paul anticipates this objection people are going to raise, and he says, You will say to me then, why does he find fault? For who can resist his will? Who can resist the will of God? And then here's what Paul says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Jason, you ever wonder, why can't I be in the family where everybody's healthy? 
where it all just goes good. Everybody's happy and doing stuff. Why does God choose some for one path in life and others for another path? And Paul's answer is, who are you to ask that question? You were made by God. Who are you to go to your maker and say, hey, why'd you make me this way? Why'd you put me on this path? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? In other words, God has a purpose for these things he's doing, and it's natural for us to be curious and to wonder why. Why is that family on a different path than this family? But to put God on trial is a wrong thing to do. Psalm 115 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. That's who God is. He's not on trial. It's not up to us to... uh, How many of you are old enough to have watched I Love Lucy? Remember Ricky Ricardo? Almost every episode, Lucy, you got some splaining to do! (laughs) Right? That's not what we say to God. Why am I in this situation? You've got some explaining to do. Job tried it. When Job was going through all this, even though he was a righteous man, he went to God and said, why are you doing this? What have I done? I don't understand it. And he ended up saying, and I quote, Behold, I am of small account. The other translation says, Behold, I am vile. This is what Job said after he put God on trial for a bit. And remember, God spent two or three chapters saying, Okay, Job, gird up your loins. I'm going to ask you some questions. You're asking me questions? Where were you, Job, when I made Leviathan? Where were you when I put lightning and thunder and hail in the clouds? Where were you? Where were you? Where were you? And eventually Job says, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. So, it's okay to ask when reversals come to wonder. It's not okay to put God on trial. That's saying, I'm God, and I'm going to ask you if what you did was right. Seems like what you did isn't right. That's not a correct perspective. So let me wrap up with part three here, and that is, how do we apply these lessons in our life? What do we do with this? We see these these reversals. You'll have some that will lift you so high And you can think back on your own life, right? I hope you parents are telling your children of the things God did. You say, my kids do it all the time. Dad, tell us that story again of when this happened. And I say, oh, you wouldn't believe. It was God. Here's what he did. And he took me to this place. And I tell him of the goodness of God and how I was down here. And God put me up here. I didn't deserve it. I didn't see it coming. But then sometimes he's going to bring heartbreak that is so devastating that you'll be sure that you'll never recover. Many of you have been there already. And as I say this, you flash back to times in your life, losses, pain that you suffered, where you just thought, what in the world? I'm a follower of God. How can this be happening to me? I uh, I was with the Brownfields a week or two ago, and we were talking about this a little bit, talking about some of Jeff's ideas and you know, how is this all going to come to be. And I, I was trying to encourage them from my experience to say, Believe that God can do some incredibly big thing that's way, way, way bigger than what you're imagining. You know, it costs this many thousands of dollars to take a class and to help me get where I want to go. And it seems like 
Well, that's obviously impossible. Not that you would never say that, but in our mind, we do kind of go down that path, don't we? We say, well, I could never get from where I am to there. Think back on these examples. Think back to Joseph in prison. Think back to those times that God has worked in your life, and you say, wait a minute. Not only can he do this, I bet he's going to do something even bigger than I'm imagining. That's why I love that passage from Ephesians. It's better than we could even ask or think or imagine. We limit ourselves because in our mind we think God's like us, that he's finite. I want to, and I'm not talking about a positive attitude, optimism, you know, where you stand in front of the mirror and go, I can do it, I can do it. You know, that's, that's ridiculous. I'm talking about not trusting in horses or chariots or yourself, but trusting completely in God. That's what makes it so possible. If it was up to us or if it was like 10% me and 90% God, I would find a way to mess it up with my 10%. So here's a few, uh, and I share these, and as I share them, I hope that it will make you think of things in your life where God has done this. And I would tell you the same thing I told Jeff and Amy that night. It's okay to pray and ask for something so big that you can't even imagine how it could come to be. In 1985, I was 21 years old, and the Lord delivered me from the power of darkness, as Paul told the Colossians, and he transferred me, he carried me away into the kingdom of his dear son. He converted me and made me to be a follower of Christ. That's a pretty big reversal, given the path that I was going on for the first 21 years of my life. In 1996, 11 years later, he ordained that my first marriage would end in humiliating failure. Most of you have not been there, thank God. That is a devastating, humiliating, life-changing thing. And I was in my early 30s. I was broke. I was broken. My life was a wreck. And I thought at that point, the dreams that I had, the plans I had of being, I wanted to be a family guy. I wanted to have a happy wife and children that love me and all that stuff. And the plan was completely destroyed. My, God had taken me in this place I never... That's for people that don't know what they're doing. That's for people that do horrible things. That's for people that are ungodly. And here I was in that situation. In 1999, three years later, he brought me a gift. He brought me a gift I could never have imagined. Even in my specific prayers, I had prayed for a wife, and I had specific things I was asking the Lord for. And um, I knew he could, you know, probably wouldn't give them to me, but I thought, what the heck? He's God, I'll ask. And he gave me Kirsten. You've probably heard me say before, her name Kirsten Ann means the gracious Christian. So God gave me a gracious Christian wife. I did not see that one coming. When I first met her, I remember saying to my pastor at that time, <clears throat> I said, um, I know because of my past experience, I said this, I said, I know this is going to be a rough road. I know it's going to be horrible at times. I know it's going to be 
I'd be embarrassed to go back and hear the, the, vid, the audio recording of what I said to him, but I was basically saying, I'm up for it. I'm up for the work it's going to take. I'm up for, this is going to be the hardest thing. And he looked at me and he said, it's not going to be that hard. You're going to be fine. He said, you're going to be surprised at how delightfully easy this is. He actually made a statement. I almost feel embarrassed to share this, but we went for our first premarital counseling visit. You're supposed to have four or six meetings with the pastor. You guys have done this a bunch. And he'd never met Kirsten. He knew me pretty well. And at the end of our session, he leaned over and he said, we're not going to need to meet again. He said, this is going to be okay. He said, I, I feel like I'm in the presence of spiritual greatness. Our pastor, this is not a naive guy. This is a guy who's counseled for 20 years. He has a, a PhD in counseling. And he's seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. He met my wife for one afternoon. He said that he was in the presence of spiritual greatness. Now, I reminded Kirsten of this a number of times. Whenever she'd, you know, lose it when someone spilled ketchup, I'd be like, uh, not seeing the spiritual greatness right now. And she'd roll her eyes and, you know, she didn't believe it any more than, you know, when he said that. But, um, but what a reversal. I was so low, you can't even understand unless you've been there, how low I was. And then I'm married to Kirsten. And he was right. Never had a bad day in 18 years. And people think I'm exaggerating or make some mad when I say that. We never had a big fight. And it's not because of me. It's because of her. She's the gracious Christian. And the Lord did that reversal in my life. In 2007, he gave me the gift of a surgical reversal. And I've told you that story. Making me and Kirsten fruitful again. And there's six children over here in the row to, as, as proof of that. The fruit of that. And um, I remember that uh, we needed $2,400 to do that procedure, and we didn't have it. And I was doing my taxes for the year. It was uh, January. I knew how much we were going to get back. And Kirsten and I had this talk on the couch. I said, I don't know how we can do it. We need $2,400. And I went and finished my tax return, and I'm not exaggerating. I did some last stuff, put in some more information, hit the button, doing my taxes online, and the amount I was going to get back was $2,400 more than what I had originally calculated. Hmm. Looks like God had his hand in it. God watched me roll my eyes at my dear Calvinist friends when I was an Arminian, telling them that I felt sorry for them that they had fallen into such error, but I would look at the information they gave us just to humor them and so I could show them where they were wrong. And God did another reversal, and he opened my eyes to... Uh, to his sovereignty and to his goodness and to the doctrines of grace. <clears throat> After Kirsten's diagnosis, which you all know was incurable cancer, I truly did not expect her to die. I wasn't in denial. I, wasn't, I didn't expect her to die because I had learned that God was a God of reversals. They're telling us she's going to die for sure. And I said, I didn't say it smugly, I hope, but I... Tell the doctors, well, you'll see. Watch what God's going to do. And I didn't know it for sure, but I, I just had a sense that God had another reversal up his sleeve here and that everyone's telling us. So for months, I honestly didn't, I didn't even go there in my mind. I didn't prepare to grieve because I just did not think it was going to happen. I honestly didn't. And God did give us a reversal. It was obviously one of a different nature than what we had not just me, all of you, that what we prayed for and hoped for. But here's my point. 
I think it's good and right that I expected her to live. I had every reason to expect it. It's okay that she didn't. The reversal that he brought was different. But it's okay when you're in that situation. I don't think it's crazy or wrong or unbiblical. I think it's very biblical to say, watch what he can do. He can do this. Everyone else is saying it can't happen. It can happen. And I, don't, I look back and I don't think it was wrong for us to think that. I think it was appropriate and good to have so much confidence in God to know he's done this a thousand times before. Can he do it? Absolutely he can do it. And I think he's going to. It turns out he didn't. But I think it's good and right to have expected it. It's also good that the reversal took me the other way. I'll close with this. Job, at the end of chapter 1, when the Lord brought his calamities upon him, he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Notice he didn't just say, things have been given to me and things have been taken away from me. He knew the source and he said, it was the Lord that had brought both reversals to him. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm going to conclude by doing something shocking. I'm going to quote the Bible from the NIV. (laughs) I've never done this before in a sermon. If you're not familiar with the NIV, it is the nearly inspired version of the Bible. (laughs) So just be ready, because I like the way the NIV has this. and uh, So I'm going to read it to you in the NIV. But I want to close with this. When our Heavenly Father delivers you out of the miry clay and puts you on that mountaintop, and you just cannot believe it, or when he pulls the rug out from under you, or at least it feels that way, for no apparent reason, expect these things to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's already happened to many of you many times. It's going to happen again. And when it does, remember what Paul exclaimed in his letter to the Ephesians. He said, Now unto him that is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to the power that worketh in us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, it's so good to look back in your word to see the dozens and dozens and dozens of times and the many others that are not even accounted for in your word when you have altered the course of people's lives because you only have our best in mind. You're not playing games. You're not trying to tease us or torture us. You are not a God that would do such things. You are all good and you are all powerful. And so you have the ability to bring about only good things in our lives, even when they seem to us, Lord, to be confusing, perplexing, devastating. And so I thank you for the examples in your word. I thank you for the examples in my life. Lord, I know that the people here are looking back, and I trust they are remembering the many things you have done in their lives, the completely unexpected, dramatic reversals of fortune that should prove to us that you are God, not to be put on trial, that should prove to us that you are all good and that everything you have for us is for our good. I pray, the Lord, that this would encourage us to trust you and to love you. And I pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity. 
to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.